Well, this morning, we've, uh, if you're just now joining us, we've been talking about a concept of uh, living in light of eternity. And so part of what we're actually going to be talking about today, as you can see on the slide behind me, is we're going to be talking about work in light of eternity. Now, as we get ready to go into this, this text, man, uh, I've been interested in this text because how many times do you go to church and hear a sermon on work? Not that often, right? Maybe if you go and hear a sermon on what I'm supposed to be doing as a worker as well, I'm supposed to be a good husband, I'm supposed to not drink, not smoke, not chew, not date girls who do, um, all of that kind of stuff, that I hear other aspects of my life, but I don't hear anything specifically about what it means to work. And so today we're really gonna be looking at a, a text that Paul is driving home this idea of work and what does work look like to the glory of God. And so as we start thinking through this, I have three questions that I wanna ask you. Think of a time, and I don't know how many of you can think of this person, but who is your boss? Put, put a picture, maybe you don't have a boss right now. Think of a boss that, that you work for and, and think of that boss, get a person in your head. And for some of you, I, I, even in this church, I've actually worked for some of you. Um, and, and so I've, I've worked for a variety of different people here in this, in this room. So think of that boss. Who is your boss? What are they like? Are they a good boss? Are they an unruly boss? Are they a boss that you can never please? Are they someone that, that you do anything and everything that you can do, but you just can't ever please that person? What's this boss like? And then my last question that I have for you is, does your boss, does your employer impact your service? In other words, does your boss impact how we work, what we do? How many of you in here would say, and you can just kind of do it by a, a nod, how many of you would say that my boss impacts how I do what I do? Yeah, see a lot of heads nodding. So we're going to talk about those three things, but one of the things that I think is difficult this morning is I have this next picture to kind of talk through. Oh, it's a lovely landscape, we, it, and, and it, there's a chasm here. It's just basically a canyon. There's water running through the middle of it, and here's, here's the difficulty that we're going to face this morning. Is it, when we start talking about work, uh, man, uh, thinking through this whole idea of work, there are so many misconceptions, and so we might find ourselves on one side of this chasm and looking across to the other side going, you know what, in reality, there's, there's two different realities going on in my life. And so let me at least talk through three different misconceptions with work that I was thinking through this week. One, uh, for some of us, as we look at work and we start thinking through this concept of work, maybe some of you, just like me, have, have maybe embraced an idea of work, of what work is, is it, in reality, it's a curse. <laughs> My alarm goes off and that's another reminder. I gotta get out of bed and I gotta go to work and it is a curse. I hate work, I can't stand work. And we're doing anything and everything that we do to try to avoid doing work and maybe even minimizing the amount of work that we have to do and work. We're just looking at it and going, this is like the four letter word of all four letter words, <laughs> folks. I don't like this word, work. And, and we see work as a curse. Is that where you are this morning? 
Well, maybe there's another aspect of, of how we kind of think through work and maybe life, work is life. Oh, man. You know, you, you live to work. And, and, and when you get out of bed, the reason that you get out of bed every morning is like, woo, I can't wait. I'm going to be working. Whistle while you work. And you're like, man, work is what gives me meaning. Work is what gives me purpose. Work is what gives me life. And in fact, you can't get away from work. You can't even get away from work to go home and maybe be with your family because work is so great. And these other things in life, they're just getting in the way of me working. And if there weren't all these other distractions and people and other things, like, man, I could get a whole lot done. I love work. Work is so great. Work is my God. I worship work. And we have in America people who are workaholics. You can see it happening in our culture. They're addicted to work. So maybe in this room you have that same approach to work, that you're addicted to it. It's destroying other relationships that you have around you. And, and, and all you can do is you're consumed with production. That's how you find meaning and purpose and identity. Well, there's one other one that I was thinking through, and this is kind of a more popular one, especially like with my age and younger. Um, we started talking about this whole idea is I don't want to live to work. I want to work to live, right? So all of a sudden we started talking about this whole thing. And now when we talk about work and life, how do we talk about it? We talk about a work life Balance, right? I need to have this work-life balance thing because, you know, I work. And then, and then you even have songs that were created, my, like epic song. Can you think of a song right in the top of your head of just something about work? Everybody's working for the weekend. You know, I mean, you're like, oh, man, life begins as soon as 5 o'clock hits. And that's when life really starts happening. Work is just kind of one of those things that I have to kind of get through, but oh man, I can't wait till I'm done with work because man, I get to go home and be with family, I get to go on vacation, I get to go work in the garden, I get to go da, da, da. All of a sudden, all of these things, and then I look at, at work as something that work and life, they don't coexist, they're actually two different things. See, now here's where it's interesting for us as people. Because this is the popular idea right now, that we talk about this work-life balance and, and the reality for each and every one of us is, is we, we, we have this weird thing that has started to happen to us as Americans is we start to compartmentalize our lives and now I have this identity that I'm a worker, I'm also a husband, I'm also at sometimes I'm a parent, and then at sometimes I'm a neighbor. And those areas don't relate at all. Do you know what I mean by that? That that's, that's, that's happening in today, and to give you an illustration, that I, I might be able to walk up to any one of you and go, man, how's life going? And if things aren't going well, I go, well, how's your work going? Man, I can't, uh, I'm doing horrible at my job, I hate my boss, I hate my life, you know, things are going horrible. And I go, okay, well, what's going on? Well, I, I'm, I'm cheating as an employee, I'm doing this, I'm not doing this right. Well, how's your marriage going? Oh, it's going horrible. I, man, I, I hate my wife, hate my life, hate my kids. And then I ask you a question. I go, well, how's your relationship with the Lord going? And what do you say? Oh, it's good. It's real good. You know, we have so lost. You talk to a, a, a Paul. You talk to these early Christians. And, and, and if you were to say that to one of them, they would look at you with the strangest look and go, huh? What, what do you mean by that? 
you're, you're, you're lost in a, in a different world. They'd be concerned. So we live these fractured lives. And what's the danger of living a fragmented life like that? Is there any impact? Does it impact you and me? Separating work and life? Separating all of these different aspects of who I am, maybe work and my devotion to God, is there any consequence to that? What harm is there in separating those things? Well, let me share with you some people who are offering some insight into this before we get into scripture. C.S. Lewis um, is a great writer, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, for those of you that watched that. Um, but great thinker, and here's a quote by him where he says this, and I'm gonna read just a little bit before what you see on the screen here, and he says this. The great thing, if one can, is to stop regarding all the unpleasant things as interruptions of one's own or real life. The truth is, of course, that what one calls interruptions are precisely one's real life. The life God is sending one day by day, what one calls one's real life is a phantom of one's own imagination. What does he mean by that? The idea that he's trying to get across is this. So many of us, we, we encounter whether it's work and we go, oh man, work is this interruption in my life. I can't wait to get done with work so I can get on to real living. Oh, my kids, crying out loud. Would you stop interrupting me so I can get back to my real life? Oh man, interruptions in sleep. We're crying out loud. I got a phone call. My neighbor was needing something. That is an interruption in my life. Would you just let me get back to my life? And what C.S. Lewis is talking about is he's saying, no, we've got this all messed up. These interruptions, these things that are happening in our life, they're not separate items. They're all a part of our life. That's just a part of what it means to be a, a human. They're not these interruptions. They're not these evil things that, that come into our life. C.S. Lewis adds that, he says that, these great th the one great thing is if we can stop regarding all these unpleasant things as interruptions of our life or our real life. Because the truth is that that is life. That's, that's just what it's a part of. So my question for us this morning is, are we living a fractured life? what we've been looking at with Paul, what he's been encouraging each and every one of us is this. Remember that illustration with who's on the throne of your life? We had that pedestal that was in here, the footstool, and there's this battle that's going on in each and every one of our lives on who is going to be first in each and every one of our lives. That's what Colossians has been all about. Who will be preeminent in your life? is essentially Paul's question. And that Christ, his idea, that Christ would be preeminent over every aspect of our living. And so when we're coming into this issue and, and, and looking at work specifically, we're gonna be looking at what's, what does Paul have to say to us about work? Is this something that is an interruption? Is this something that is an unnecessary evil? It's a curse. Is this something that I am to worship and it's to control and dictate my life? Where is work fall for each and every one of us? And if we get this wrong, it leads to all sorts of dysfunction in our life. 
So we need to listen to what the word of God has to say to us. One more quote on this was by a guy, he was a, a, a Puritan, and his name is Richard Foster. He says this, the religious dimension is the beginning, not the end. We are to take this life and incorporate it into all we are and all we do. We bring it into daily life, into our homes, into our work, into our relationships with children and spouse and friends and neighbors and yes, even our enemies. Every aspect. Here we come to the most fundamental arena for what it means for the incarnational tradition the arena of everyday life. It is the place par excellence in which we make visible and manifest the invisible realm of the spirit. Do you hear what he's trying to say? Let me put this into different words for you. Paul has been talking that Jesus Christ would be preeminent in your life. And there's this reality that happens that, that it is reality, but we don't always see it in every field and of, 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 in every aspect and facet of our life. But the reality of this reality of Christ being preeminent in all things is to be integrated into every aspect of who we are. So that brings us to this idea of work. So let's look into Colossians 3. What does the word of God have to say to us? about work today. So if you would, turn with me, Colossians 3, 22 through 4, 1, and I'm gonna read that with us. And would we just stand in honor of the word of God together? The slide's behind me, so if you don't have a Bible, you can take a look at that and follow along. So Paul says this in the word of God, slaves, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. And there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have masters in heaven. Go ahead and be seated. Yeah, amen to the word of God. So here's the difficulty that we have in looking at this text. Slavery. Paul is writing to slaves. So first, I want to talk through what does this idea of slavery help you understand even just the concept of slavery, and it's important to us, for us to understand that, because the reality of Colossians and what's happening right now is Paul has sent this letter. He's written this letter for these people in Ephesus, and, and it's being delivered by Tychicus. He's bringing this letter to this church, and Tychicus, Tychicus is also bringing someone with him, a guy named Onesimus, a slave, a runaway slave. So he's bringing this other man with him and he's bringing him back to his master, Philemon, who lives in Colossae. Now the most interesting thing about this passage, for reason that we need to understand slaves is this. When Paul writes this letter, if you contrast this with Ephesians, Paul spends a lot of time talking about marriage and we spent some time talking about marriage and what it means for Christ to be preeminent in our marriages and then we even talked about family life, that Christ would be preeminent in our, our, our family life. 
But Paul spends an exorbitant amount of time in this passage specifically about slaves and master relationship. Why? Well, it just so happens that there's this guy named Onesimus, his name means useful, and he's sending this person back to his master whom he's run away from. Now, we'll get some idea of just what that means for this guy. So to help us understand slavery, now some of you might start thinking of slavery and you probably have a picture that comes to mind when you think of slavery, right? Each and every one of us probably have a pretty vivid picture of what slavery might mean. It might mean a whip, it might mean shackles, it might mean a person rowing underneath a boat. We get all of these different pictures of what slavery might look like, but, but I need you to have a different picture of slavery But because by this time in the New Testament, there was a very different picture of what, ha- what was happening in slavery. Now, to give you an idea of the scale, about a third of the people were slaves in the Roman Empire. That's a ton of people. Roman Empire expanded not just in, in, in Rome and in Italy. I mean, it was stretching all the way in through a huge, vast territory. And to think through that a third of these people are slaves. They're not freemen. They're not, they're not the, the elite of the, of the group. These are, are slaves. Well, what does it mean to be a slave? That person was property of their owner. They didn't have a will other than the will of their owner. Wait a minute, this is kind of going back to that same picture that you might have just been having, right? But I need you to have a different idea of what this slave was, maybe to give you some ideas of some differences. See, when you start looking at the New Testament slave and what was happening with these people, go ahead and bring this next slide. This is more what you need to have in mind. This probably isn't what you had in mind of slaves. Doctors, artists, musicians, was it? You were probably thinking of someone in shackles. But the slaves that we're, that we're talking about in this, in this group, many of these slaves, do you realize that the slaves at this time were probably treated better than, than freemen in many cases? They ate better. They, fed, they were fed better many times. If you were a freeman, there was no guarantee if you were going to have a job. This person had a guaranteed job as long as their master was alive. This person had job security. This person was able to, to, to thrive, to succeed. They didn't have to worry about food, where food was going to be coming from. This person actually had it off pretty well. They were doing well. They dressed better than freemen in many, case, in many occasions. So when you think of and, and, and have this idea of what a slave was, I need you to have a different picture of what this person looked like. While they were property of their owner, they could be doctors, they could be musicians, artists, teachers, they could receive training for an occupation that would benefit and bless that master. And it would be an occupation that maybe they were even interested in. Isn't that crazy to think about? So a slave in this culture was actually someone that was actually doing fairly well. It depended on their master. Now, the other thing that could happen is this slave, they could eventually possibly, in in Paul's time, they could eventually maybe even purchase their own freedom. They weren't necessarily just property of that person. They they might even be emancipated by by what's called, uh, oh, now I'm blanking the name of it. It starts with an M. But they could get this letter from their, their master freeing them as a slave so that they could be a freeman, possibly even after death. Now, there were numerous different people that, that, that were slaves here in, in this culture, but this wasn't maybe the picture of slavery of what we have in our minds right now. 
Now, why is that important to think through? Well, when we start thinking through Onesimus, he was a person whose his name means useful. He was a runaway slave. Now, because he's property of that owner, Philemon will now have the opportunity to potentially kill Onesimus, brand him, forever showing that he was a person who was a deserter, or treat him miserably. That's what Onesimus is going back to. That's what Paul is willingly sending the slave back to. There's a reality that for this person, there could be serious consequences for this person. So Paul is sending this person named Onesimus back. In the meantime, Onesimus has come to know the Lord. And Paul writes in Philemon that, who you saw that was useless, I send you back as someone who is useful. He is Onesimus. And he is Onesimus because of this new relationship that he has with Jesus Christ. What changed? And it's important for us, and here's why. When we start thinking about this passage of Scripture in Colossians 3, here's something important that we need to grapple with and wrestle with. God changes us. This gospel message, the reality that we are sinners, that we are people that deserve punishment because of our sin, that Jesus Christ willingly came, offered his life as a sacrifice for us so that we might have life through faith in him. He changes us, but how does he change us? The interesting thing about this is that Paul doesn't seek to change Onesimus' status. He doesn't write a letter and actually say, listen, you guys, you need to abolish slavery. He doesn't do that anywhere. He doesn't look and say, listen, Philemon, you need to free this person named Onesimus. He doesn't do that. Why is that so important? How is it that we are changed? So many of us are looking for us to be changed, not by being changed from the inside out, but instead, what do we want change in? I want change in my circumstances. I want change in what's happening around me. And it's what's interesting about what Paul is doing here is he's not writing a letter to change the circumstances. He's actually looking at slaves and saying, if you are a slave and you are in this position, you need to live a transformed life in the position that you are in. If you are a master over a, over a slave, it's not that you need to get rid of that slave or this relationship that you have. Instead, you need to be transformed and live a new life so that this person who is a slave underneath you experiences something so radically different. So God changes us, not by changing our circumstances, but by transforming our lives to be truly useful, to be truly Onesimus. Paul doesn't denounce slavery. He doesn't order them freed. Instead, what does he do? He stresses the importance of changed lives by the gospel. Onesimus becomes truly useful. He was a runaway slave. I want you to listen to something that is so powerful as we consider Colossians 3 together. Now let's look specifically at this text. 
So Colossians 3.22, or 3.22, as you're looking at the text in here, what's happening in the passage? It says, slaves, obey in everything. Those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. And then there's a command that's given here. It doesn't look like a command in some of your translations, but it says, you are serving the Lord Christ. Many of the translators look at this and they go, what, what, what's really trying to be said here is he's saying, slaves keep slaving for Christ. Slave yourself to Christ. Be a slave of Christ. If there's one thing that we can get out, out of this is this. Yes, God does not change our circumstances. He's seeking to change us in the midst of our circumstances. Well, how does that change happen? First and foremost, what he looks at these workers and says is, listen, you need to understand that this whole idea of, of work, this is about identity. Many of you are looking at your identity and going, well, who I am really relates to my boss. I'm a, I'm a person with a good master. I'm a person with a bad master. And so how does that impact how I serve and how I, how I treat this relationship? And what Paul does is he goes, wrong question. You're asking who your earthly master is. You're not asking who is my heavenly master. For the Lord, keep serving. The first thing and foremost for us in this work relationship, for us to actually succeed is to let Christ be preeminent in our work relationship and going, listen, I have an earthly master, but it's Jesus who is ultimately my master. He's the one that I absolutely serve. And that's the one big idea that Paul's getting across. Whether you're a slave, whether you're a master, it's Christ who is the one who is preeminent. So that determines how we now treat one another as servant and master. Does that make sense? It's so important. If we don't let Christ be preeminent, oh man, that's where we start running into a lot of the problems that we have. So he looks at these people and he says, who is your boss? And he points to him as we look at the passage and he says, slave, first and foremost, your boss, your master is Christ. If you're a person who owns slave, guess what? Your master is Christ. It's so important for us to realize. Paul brings them back to who is your boss. The second thing that we would ask is this. Well, if Jesus is my master, what's my master like? So is work a curse? If work is a curse, let's think through this on what is this master like? Who is he? See, what we've learned from Colossians, and, and if we can go to that slide with a picture of, of Colossians, what we've learned about Jesus is this. We've learned in Colossians already from Colossians 1 that it's by him all things were created. All things were created through him and for him and to him. He's the one who is holding all of this together. What else is happening with Jesus? Not only that, but right now, do you understand what Jesus is in the process of doing? He's in the process of reconciling, bringing people back to himself. What do we learn about the God that we serve? What is he like? He works, and he works, and he does things excellently. 
When people looked at creation, when they looked at what God had done, how did they respond? In Mark 7, 37, it says this, and people were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done, he has worked all things well, talking about Jesus. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. What else do they say about him? Psalm 73 says, but as for me, it's good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. The reality of what we learn about God, when you start reading through this book, you start learning that even from Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created. Work is not a curse. This is a part of even, our God is a God who works. In the process right now of what we see even in Ephesians 1 is that he's in the process of working out this story of salvation for each and every one of us and many people who don't know himself. Colossians speaks of that, that he's in the process of reconciling people back to himself and welcoming people who are at odds with him. Our God is a God who works and he does it so well. When we look at what he's done, oh man, it blows us away at how he does these things. Is work a curse? No. For me to say that would be to say that our God is cursed. No, he works. Work isn't a curse. So we look back, what do we learn about this God that, that we serve? Man, we learn that he is a God who works. He's a good master who has our best interest in mind. It's important for us to understand that slave-master relationship. Our master is a master who takes care of our needs. We don't have to worry about, will I have food? Will I have clothing? Will I have shelter? We actually can live our life and work and live and, and, and have our being knowing the fact that our, our God is a God who takes care of our needs. He's a good master. He trains us in righteousness. Remember one of the things that could happen with a master is that they could actually train a slave to be part of doing something in, in their household. He trains us in righteousness and grace and truth. He looks out for, and he trains us to look out for the interest of others. He promises not to abandon us and to remain with us through difficulty, through delight. You understand that our God is a God who works. And if we are gonna be like him, what do I need to embrace? Work is a part of who he is. I'm made in his image. For me to be a great image bearer means that I will be a worker. I will be a worker, not just now, until the time that I die, but when I'm resurrected, I will have work that I will be put in charge of. We will not stop working. Ah, it's a great truth. Well, then the next question that I would ask is, does your boss impact how you serve? And I would say, absolutely. Look back at the text with me. So Colossians 3.22 says this. Colossians 3.22 says, slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. And how does he describe how we're to obey? Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart. What Paul starts doing all throughout this passage, if you look at the passage, he starts giving contrasts of what it means to actually work to the glory of God and what does it look like to work instead for just an earthly master. Well, what's the danger of just working for an earthly master when I just have that in mind? What does he say? Not by way of eye service as people pleasers. And what does that, that mean? I'm doing what I do to be seen. Does that make sense? 
and as a people pleaser, why am I doing what I'm doing? It's so that I can actually win people toward me. And I may actually compromise integrity. I may compromise what I'm actually supposed to be doing in order to get somebody to like me. That's what he's talking about. That when I just serve for man to be a people pleaser, for eye service, all that I'm doing is I'm doing things for me so that I look better. But the difference that happens is this. He says, instead, how are we to serve? Not as people that are eye pleasers or people pleasers, but I'm to serve with sincerity of heart. There's not to be these folds. Kind of think of it like my shirt. If I fold it over like this, that's that idea of not being sincere. There's something hidden here that you can't see on my shirt. And when I truly fear God, when I let him be first in my life and preeminent, I can now serve with sincerity, without folds in my heart, without hidden motives, without hidden agendas, without trying to get people just to like me or to see that, oh man, aren't I great? How are we to do all things? Colossians 3, 17. Oh, we're to do all things so that, to his name so that he gets credit, that he gets glory. So we look at this contrast that keeps happening all throughout this whole, whole passage and Paul keeps bringing people back to this contrast of what does it look like to serve God and what does it look like just to serve man? And he presents a picture showing us that when I actually serve with Jesus Christ on the throne, oh my goodness, folks, that absolutely changes how we work. I'm not just serving to be seen. Well, what else does he say about how we serve and how we work, what we do? He says this in verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily. Work, work with all, all of your being for the Lord. You do this. Work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive a reward. How many of us when we work, what we really want is we really want to be seen. I really want my boss to know what I've done. See, the difference of when I actually put Jesus Christ first and I start serving him only, I'm not just looking for the pat on the back for my employer. My boss is not gonna see every single thing that I do. Maybe you've worked for a boss like that, that you wanted them to see something that you did, but they didn't catch it, they didn't see it. Well, what keeps giving me motivation to keep working in this case? When I know that Jesus is actually the one that I'm serving, I can actually have that endurance to keep going and keep serving because one of the things that I know is that he's the one, he sees everything that I do, both good and bad. And what is he gonna do? He's gonna reward for the good things that I've done. So that's a, a positive thing. On the negative side, man, when I am not, when I'm doing bad work, he's gonna see that too. So Paul is looking at these different contrasts of work and, and highlighting the difference of working as to the Lord and not just to men. The last thing that he mentions in this is he says that you are serving the Lord Christ for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong that he has done. There's no partiality. Specifically to masters, he says, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. All right, so here's my question to each and every one of us. I've talked through this passage. Paul looks at us, and if we're to, to, to grasp one idea from this whole passage is this. Paul wants us to serve as to Christ. Christ is the one who is our master. So does it matter who my master is when I serve? 
What would Paul say? Absolutely. Christ is the one that you serve. Does it matter what they're like? Absolutely. He's a good master. He, ap- he absolutely sees each and everything that we do. The last question that I had to ask is, does that change how we serve? Absolutely. When I know I have a good master who sees each and everything that I do, and I'm doing things for him, not just for eye service to be seen by others, that changes every aspect of how I serve. There's one last perspective that I wanted to share. And this was by a person named Dorothy Sayers. And they said this, and this kind of reiterates that whole point. Let the church remember this, that every maker and worker is called to serve God in his profession or trade, not outside it. How I serve in my job. What would Paul say to us as a church? And he's written it already, but let me put it into different words. What does our, what does our religion demand of us? What does God desire for us as workers? What I shared earlier, and, and I think you heard it, is so many times when, when I get up to talk, you might hear a person talk and say, well, don't, don't drink and smoke and chew and date girls who do and all that fun stuff. No. What does our religion ask of us? What does God ask of us? Listen to this quote by Dorothy Sayers. She says this, and it's not up on the screen. It says, and nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as a failure to understand and respect secular vocation. Does what you do matter? Whatever you do. You change tires. You're an attorney. Does it matter what you do? Does it matter how you do it? She says, and nothing has the church so lost her hold on reality as her failure to understand and respect secular vocation. She's allowed work and religion to become separate departments and is astonished to find that as a result, secular work in the world is turned to purely selfish and destructive ends. Did you hear that? Listen to this next part. And that the greater part of the world's intelligent workers have become irreligious or at least uninterested in religion. Why are they uninterested in religion? Here's what she answers. But is it astonishing? How can one remain interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of their life? The church's approach to an... to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. But listen to this. Here's where she changes. What should the church be doing instead? Listen. They should be telling him this, that the first demand that God makes upon him is that he should make what? If they're a carpenter, good tables. They should make good tables. The church, by all means, and all forms of amusement, certainly. But what use is it at the very center of their life and occupation? You're insulting God with bad carpentry. <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? Did you catch what they just said? Who are you? What do you my, my question to each and every one of us is a church, and I'm coming down for a reason. When we're talking about work, we're talking about what we produce. 
Well, each and every one of us are putting our hands to produce. We're each to be workers. We're each to do something. Is there a difference between sacred and secular? What Paul says is no. There's no difference. What you do and how you do it is something that actually reflects the God that you embrace. If you are a worker who changes tires and works on cars, do it to the best of your ability so that God gets the glory. When people look at that, is that a, is that a, a worldly thing? No, that's, that's sacred when you actually work to the glory of God. When you do it with excellence to his credit, not just to my own. Are you a teacher? Be an excellent, be the best teacher that you can be because it's the God that you serve that you are representing in that classroom. Are you a person that works in, 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 for, for Board of Public Utilities or maybe you work for police department? Are you an attorney here in town? Whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Do it to the best of your ability. What Paul is talking about to these people is he's looking at these people and he's saying, slave, I'm not gonna change your situation. I'm not asking that you would be released as a slave. I'm not asking that, that somehow that your, your owner would release you. What I am asking is that you would be transformed in how you actually do your job. Because people are gonna notice. People are gonna look at that and go, who is this God that you serve? I wanna know about them. What gives you motivation to keep doing what you're doing? I wanna know who this person is that, that compels you to live the way that you do. Is it important who my boss is? Absolutely. Is it important who they are? Absolutely. Does it change how we do our jobs? It absolutely must. And Paul is talking about that in Colossians 3, 22 through 4, 1. When I allow Jesus to be my master, and I realize that I am a slave of him. And I realize that there's a reward for this service that I offer him in whatever capacity it is that you're in the church here today. Don't ever let it be said as a Berean that you give sloppy work. Not because that reflects on Berean. That reflects on your God. May we be a people who work hard to the glory of Jesus in whatever we do, not so that you get a great name, but so that Jesus gets credit. Let's pray. Father, I ask today for each and every one of us, God, whatever job that you have us in, whether it's, God, it, there's so many different occupations here in Cheyenne. There's teachers, there's uh, politicians, there's lawyers, there's policemen, there's people who just offer service here in this town. Man, one of the great things that, that you call us to do and to be is a people who exist for your glory. We are your possession. You own us. God, would we remember that we were bought with a price, with the precious blood of your son, Jesus Christ, and that because of that, God, ah, oh, that we would honor you with our bodies. God, help us to live whole lives 
to not think that work, when work ends at five o'clock, that now my life begins, but to realize that my life involves work. My life involves being sometimes a dad, sometimes a neighbor, sometimes, oh God, just people that, that run into people in, in the stores. God, would there be an excellence to what we do? God, not just so that we would look good. God, forgive us for the times that we're trying to draw people's attention to ourselves. That what we do, we're trying to just make a better name for ourselves. And God, instead, would you help us to be a people that bring you glory through what we do. That we bless other people by what we do because of who you are. Oh God, help us first and foremost to have an idea, identity that we belong to you. We're loved. Help us to live from that. In your name, amen.